Good morning again. It's good to have you here. Glad that uh, you could join us for worship and for some time of the Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 John. It's where we are. We're studying, making our way verse by verse, passage by passage to the book of 1 John. So you might turn there in your phone or whatever you're reading your, your Bible on. So three weeks ago, I was in um, Nicaragua in Central America with a team of people from Gateway. And, you know, we had, a, we had an amazing time. It was It was fantastic. Um, one of the things that I was reminded of being down in Nicaragua and kind of being away from the Northwest is, uh, you know, we live in a, just a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful place, uh, but there's a lot of other beautiful parts of this uh, world that God's created as well. And, and just flying down there and being there reminded me of the diversity and the beauty of the planet that God has created for us to live on and how it reflects his uh, creativity. Um, for me, just a couple of, of, of moments fly, flying down over the, the Gulf of Mexico, um, it's, it's thunderstorm season down there. And when we were flying down, I think we're probably cruising around 35,000 feet or so. And you see these, these thunder clouds in kind of a different perspective. Like, you know, you're 35,000 feet. You could see these clouds like columns that rise up off the ocean. And they're just, they're massive. I don't know how far, but going up way past us. And you're in this plane with a couple hundred people. And you're just like a dot compared to that, that thunder cloud. And to think that God creates those, you know, hundreds of those every day. And just to see the, the majesty, look down on the Gulf of Mexico and see the, the, just the gorgeous water, uh, the blues and the greens and the reefs, to fly over uh, Central America and see the beauty of that place, the, the diversity. I'm into, I, I love um, landscaping and planting and plants. And, and uh, it's always crazy to be, you're just driving along in Nicaragua and you look on the side of the road and there's these, these beautiful plants just growing like weeds. Here, we go to a nursery and we spend lots of money for those same plants and we bring them home and put them in the house and put them in special soil and put them by the window and turn the heat up and they still die. But down there, they just grow like weeds, like all, all over the place. Um, the wildlife, again, just to, one of the things for me that was the coolest was this year was the monkeys. And, and I've never been anywhere where there's just, you know, monkeys just not in cages, but just wandering around besides like in my house. House, but um, it was really cool to be down. We were staying at this place second to the last night, and um, there were these uh, uh, howler monkeys living up in the trees. So, like, we got there and we're going to our room, and I, you know, all of a sudden I heard this loud noise. I'm like, "What's that?" And they're like, "Oh, the howler monkeys." Well, where are the howler monkeys? Oh, they're all over the place. You look up in the trees and the canopy of trees, and there's one, and there's one, and there's one. And I don't know. For me, that was just kind of cool. But to look at um, the wildlife and the plants and the beauty and the food that God's created, I'm really thinking. Um, as I think about this planet, there's only really one problem on this planet, and that's, you know, that's us. Um, it's our, our sin. It's what we've done to this place, what we've done to each other, what we've done to ourselves and society. And when you think about it, our sin has had such an incredible impact on this planet. I mean, it's why we have doors on our homes and locks on our doors and security systems and alarms and guns and police and therapists. You know, like open up the yellow pages sometimes and look at all the, like, like most of the jobs that people have in our society either are trying to control our sinful tendencies or trying to fix the result of our sin. And sometimes we forget that this is not the way that God intended and it's not where we're ultimately headed one day. 
In fact, when we were flying back on the flight from Houston to, um, to Portland, it was an evening flight, uh, and we were getting on the plane, and it's about a four-hour and 20-minute flight. And so there were, there were four of us, and three, three of our team were all together in one aisle, and I was like by myself. So you know how it is, if you're like me, you're walking. I'm not a big fan of flying anyways. And so we're walking down the aisle, and I'm trying to scope out, okay, who am I sitting by? And uh, I look ahead, and I'm like, oh, that, that's got to be where I'm sitting. There's two young kids by themselves. And sure enough, that's, that's where I'm sitting. So the, these two kids, they look like they've just got an ivy of Mountain Dew. They're like totally wound up and hopped up. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I'm like, oh, I must be sitting next to you guys. And it was a, uh, a five-year-old boy, uh, I'm sorry, an eight-year-old boy and an 11-year-old girl. And uh, so I sat down, and I introduced myself, and, and uh, you know, I said, who are you? And, you know, they told me their names and their middle names and their last names and their social security number and their passport. And like, I'm starting out this conversation and realizing, I don't think they ever had a discussion with their parents about, you know, what you don't tell strangers because they're, they're going to tell me anything, you know? So I'm like, well, where are you guys from? Well, we're from uh, Costa Rica, they said. And, and uh, they're actually Americans, but they said five years ago, we moved to Costa Rica. Our mom and dad got jobs down there. So we moved down there and, and now we're heading up, you know, to um, the Northwest to visit with some family. And, and I could pr- pretty much ask them anything and they would tell me. There was like no, no red lights, no, we don't tell a complete strangers, this kind of information, you know. So we're talking and having this conversation and there's just like, I don't know, there's just something about the innocence and they're not worried or concerned. Who's this creepy 50-year-old man sitting next to us asking us personal questions? Just none of that. And I'm kind of wondering, I wonder, you know, if there's anything they won't tell me. I'm like, you know, so where are you from? Costa Rica. Like, what part of Costa Rica? They tell me their address, you know, just like the whole thing. So anyways, we're about an hour and a half into the flight. And uh, they thought it would be fun to put the armrests up so there was nothing dividing us and, and um, you know, messing around. And after about an hour and a half, they got kind of tired. And so the boy's kind of doing this. He's next to me. And finally, he just kind of falls asleep. And at some point, he just kind of flops over in my lap. And when he flopped, you know, so I'm kind of like, I don't know this kid. And then I'm like, oh, I got this kid in my lap. And then, and then he kind of, uh, you know, he doesn't think about where he is. And so he just kind of crawls and curls up in my lap and rolls up in a little ball you know, and there he's like on my lap and then his sister falls asleep and she falls asleep on him and then she, it's kind of cold so she puts a blanket and he's warmer so she kind of crawls up on him who's on top of me and so you know me, I'm just, I'm casual so I'm just kind of sitting there and I got these two kids that I don't know, who they don't know me and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm like, at least I got hours to go so um, I have my laptop so I put my headphones in and, and I'm watching Lost, you know, which is kind of ironic, you're watching lost on an airplane flight. I'm like, that's, you know, and I don't like flying anyways, but that was a poor choice. So I'm watching lost and I get these kids in my lap. And then it, it kind of, at one point it occurs to me, after a couple hours, they're just totally snoozing, you know. And I'm like thinking to myself, I wonder what's going to happen when uh, the boy wakes up and he's like this on my lap. When he wakes up and looks at me and says, I don't know that guy. <laughs> I mean, like, he doesn't, is he going to freak? Is he going to yell? Is he going to start swinging? You know, what's going to happen? And so he, they both sleep for a couple of hours and, and uh, I'm just watching Lost, hoping our, our plane doesn't go down. And, and, uh, and then about 20 minutes before we get there, um, the captain comes on, says we're coming into Portland and, and uh, he, all of a sudden he starts to move and, you know, I'm kind of looking at him and all of a sudden he stretches out and he puts his arm around my neck and he opens his eyes and he looks at me and he says, 
wow, mister, that's the best nap I've ever had on a plane, you know? <laughs> and I just, you know, and she woke up and we talked some more and they went their way. And I, you know, I don't even remember their names. I have not, I, I, they were pretty safe telling me anything they wanted. But I was just kind of thinking, you know, wouldn't it be cool to be that secure and to be that innocent and to be that, well, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to be that trusting in our world today? And the problem is that sin has so messed us up. We look at kids like that and think that's not safe. That's not right. When we're the ones who, we're the ones who aren't right. Our insecurities, our, we're untrusting. Our sin has made us people who tend to look out for our own interests instead of those of others. We think that anxiousness is normal and striving is normal and issues are normal and all of that. And in the middle of this, we come to uh, 1 John chapter 3. And John has a message for us that uh, life was meant to be different. I want to read this for you in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 is our text. Let me read this. John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are, and he says it again, we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. Father God, I want to thank you for uh, bringing us here today in the midst of uh, busy lives, of, of a lot of stuff to do. But you have a very, very simple message for us this morning. And I, I pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide through scripture and that he would open up our hearts and our minds to hear your voice and your message to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. I think John has a very simple message for us today and that is this. He wants us to learn to relax and enjoy the fact that if we are in Christ, we are loved. If we are in Christ, his love for us defines us more than anything else in this world. It's not your, your past. It's not your mess-ups. It's not your mistakes. It's not the things that people have said about you. It's not your failures that define you. What defines you is the fact that God loves you. And in this passage, I, I just noticed what I would call the, the three-dimensional love of God for us. Very simple this morning, but the first one is this, that God has loved you. We have been loved by God in the past tense. And I say that because um, I've discovered over the years that for many of us, our, our self-worth, you know, when we, when we look in the mirror, when we think about ourselves, so much of our self-worth is highly influenced by our very limited view of our past experiences in this life and our interaction with other people. What I mean is this, you know, I've, I've had so many discussions with people who will say things like, well, when I was a kid, I never felt like my mom and dad loved me or accepted me, and so that's a big part of what drives me today. I feel like I'm, I'm trying to earn the love and respect of my parents or someone else in my life, and that's kind of what drives me, or people who will say, when I was younger, I was kind of not, I wasn't in the in crowd, I was a social outcast, and so now a big thing that drives me is I just want to be accepted and part of the in crowd, or people, you know, guys will say, when I was a kid, I didn't get the girl 
girl, and when I did, she broke my heart. And, and so, you know, that kind of drives who I am today. Or, you know, somebody hurt me, or somebody said something about me, or I didn't get the grades, or whatever it was. And for how many of us, you know, will say, when we think about it, so much of the way I feel about myself today is determined by things that happened in my past. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I would have these discussions with middle school kids and high school, you know, high school kids would say, my mom and dad, I don't feel accepted, I don't feel loved, and that's driving me, and I could, I could understand that. But as I got older, I was having that same discussion with people in their 20s, and their 30s, and their 40s, and their 50s, and their 60s. I've had discussions with people in their 70s who still talk about things that happened to them when they were in, you know, school or in their 20s, and, and still, when they think about themselves, that's, it, it, it's those events that kind of it, it makes them determine who they are and, and what their self-worth is. John comes along and says, hey, you know, you need to kind of rethink your past. Because if there's anything that defines your past more than anything else, it's the fact that God loved you. That God designed you and thought you up out of his love. That God created you out of love. That God sent his son to die for you because of his love, that God saved you out of his love, and he blesses you out of his love. In verse 1, he says this, Now see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. And, and translators um, really struggle to know how to, how to best phrase this word, see how great, in, uh, from the Greek to the English. So probably, if you have a different translation than what I've got up here, it says something different. So the New American Standard simply says, see. The CEV says, think about God's great love. The King James says, behold the love of God for you. Um, the actual word in the Greek is the word horao, and it doesn't mean just to see something. It means to, to gaze upon something, to behold something, to, um, to think about it, to ponder it, uh, to, to perceive it, to pay attention. It's really meant to be an attention-getting word. So, so John's idea was that when you would read it, you would stop what you were doing, and you would think about that for a minute. And John's just saying, you know, we have a tendency to get up in the morning and, and dive into our day, carrying all our neuroses and issues and, and stuff from our past, never really understanding who we are. And John just kind of says, every now and then, you ought to just stop for a minute and think about your past and think about how much God loves you. In fact, there's a couple of scriptures I would point you to that really make this, this point for us. In Romans 5, it tells us this, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Didn't just talk about it, but demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says that God's love for you is active when you had no love for him. That when you weren't thinking about him, he was thinking about you. That when you didn't care about him, he cared about you. When you didn't love him, it says that he had a love for you, that he sent Jesus for you, that he sought you when you didn't care about him. In Ephesians, it tells us this. Because of God's great love for us, God who was rich in mercy, two really big words there you might circle, mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by, and here's the second word, grace. It is by grace that you have been saved. I love this passage because it kind of fills out uh, what God's love is like for us. Two words uh, for me that describe the love of God here. The first is mercy. God's love is full of mercy. And here's how I remember mercy and grace. Mercy is where God doesn't give me what I deserve, and grace is where God gives me what I don't deserve. So mercy means God didn't give me what I deserve, which was judgment 
what I deserved from God in my past was judgment, was lightning, was boom, you know, and toast, and that's it, I'm done. Because that's what I deserved. But because of God's love for me, he didn't give me what I deserved. Instead, he gave me grace, which was he gave me what I didn't deserve. He gave me salvation. He gave me love. He gave me forgiveness. He gave me his focus and his attention. Now, I realize that, you know, in your past, people have probably sinned against you. They've hurt you. They've wounded you. People have probably broken promises. You've broken promises. You've probably done some things that you regret. But what he's saying here is that those things, ultimately, they don't define you. What defines you is that the God of the universe has loved you and has blessed you and has saved you. And the, and the big question is, will you embrace that truth about yourself or will you continue to view yourself based on a very limited understanding of your past? So John comes along and he says, first of all, when we think about God's love, you need to understand that your past, if anything defines your past, it's not other people or you, it's the fact that God has loved you. But there's a second dimension to God's love for you, and that is right here and right now. If you have placed your faith in Christ, that you are loved by God at this very moment. Now, I don't know what your week has been like or your month or your year, and maybe you've come here this morning and maybe you don't feel very loved by God. Maybe you don't feel very lovable because of some of the things you've done and you've said. But what John says to us is, that's not what determines your, whether or not God loves you. In fact, he says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Now, I know you'll find some people that say, well, aren't we all God's children? In fact, in the English language, there's kind of two words to convey this, this concept. The first is the word uh, paternity. You may be familiar with that English word. And um, basically, let's see, to put it as nicely as I can, paternity is when a guy, any old guy who is of a certain age, has a particular relationship with a woman of a particular age, and they're able to produce a baby together. And we call that on the man's part paternity. He may never have a relationship with that kid or know that kid or, or even see that kid, but we call that paternity. That's one word in the English language. There's another word that really more conveys what we're talking about here, and that is fatherhood. Fatherhood describes an intimate, loving connectedness, a relationship between a father and a child. One uh, uh, writer put it this way, it's by creation that we are all creatures of God, because of course he's created all of us. But it's by grace that we become children of God. In other words, and we've talked about this many times, that when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God, through his grace, makes us uh, adopted into his family, and we become children of God right here and right now. Not someday, not after I've been good enough for a while or after I go through certain ritual or check off certain boxes or I have to wait for a while. But right now, we, if we have faith in Christ, we are completely loved by God. Uh, we are perfectly loved by God and we are children of God. And what's so sad about that is to think that we are children of God, loved and accepted by God, and yet how often do we in our insecurities try to find love in other places beside God? 
How often have we looked around, and maybe you haven't done this, but have you ever seen someone who's completely loved by God, and yet they're in their insecurity, they're, they're still trying to, to earn the love of God and people through achievement, and if I can achieve this thing, or get this GPA, or get this degree, or get this, this uh, job, then, then maybe God will love me, or people will love me. People who... who um, are willing to compromise their morality, people who are willing to give themselves to someone else sexually outside of marriage in the hopes that that other person might love them. And if that person loves them, then maybe they'll finally feel loved and accepted. All the while, they're completely loved, couldn't be more loved by God. But their insecurity drives them to compromise and give precious parts of them away because of their insecurity. Or people who think, well, if I have enough money or enough possessions, then people will like me. And if people like me, then maybe they'll love me. Or people who strive to fit in with others. And the whole while, the irony is, if they've placed their faith in Christ, they're loved by God. It's a weird thing. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that we have this dynamic, loving relationship with God with all the benefits that go along with it. We have the forgiveness of our sin. We have the righteousness of Christ inside of us, not because of what we've done, but because of the righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to us. We have the power of God, the eternal life we share in the resurrection of Christ and in the character of Christ. But instead, how often are we insecure? How often do we feel stressed out and and, and the need to to be selfish and self-centered and needy? How often do we go down paths and road, roads in life that they don't make any sense for loved and, and, and secure people in Christ? Sometimes I'm around Christians, and you know, probably obviously not you, but you know, sometimes I'll be around Christians and they'll say like things like, oh yeah, we saw this movie last night. And, uh, you know, and they'll talk about a scene in the movie that's completely ungodly, completely outside of you know, what God would have for us. And they'll brag about it like, yeah, you know, well, it wasn't very biblical, but you know, it's, kinda, it's the way life is. It's the way the world is today. Or sometimes Christians who will tell like just, you know, they'll hear a really crude joke and feel like it'd be funny to pass that along you know at church I'm always kind of surprised because sometimes the jokes that people will tell me like I would think I'm a pastor so surely they won't tell their pastor that you know but they'll tell me that joke and then sometimes I'll just scratch my head like what would why would why would a Christian tell a joke like that tell a story like that or or sometimes as Christians in our desire to fit in and be like like maybe we'll uh you know we think it's cool to swear a little bit and to have kind of a kind of a filthy vocabulary because we think if we if we swear a little bit like you know then we'll be cool and and people might like us a little bit more and we'll be hip or if we dress in a certain way or if we're, we're willing to compromise our sexual standards for people around us or cling to some sinful practice or say ungodly things and and sometimes uh, I'll talk with people um, even pastors I've I've had talks with pastors who think it's kind of cool to use cuss words from the pulpit and stuff because they think it'll really help them connect with people and non-Christians and when I ask them why they'll do it they'll say well you know I'm just kind of I'm just keeping it real because you know sometimes I think words like that and I think that really helps connect and I think John would come along and go dude you're not keeping it real that's not who you are you're you're we, we're when you tell filthy stories when you watch filthy things on tv when you compromise yourself you're you're acting You're playing a part because that's not who you are. You're a child of God. You've been changed. Why would would you do that? 
Why would you compromise yourself like that? Man, that's not you. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about, John's going to say, like, God, when you get saved, he puts a seed of Christ inside of you that, that's growing, and now that's the real you. But our insecurity sometimes, it's a weird thing, but it causes us to do things and to say things that aren't, they're not even us. John would come along and say, man, you just, you need to just relax and breathe deep the love of God. But the problem is, sometimes we just, we feel so insecure. And I think John puts it well, he says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. John says, I know sometimes you feel like you're all alone in the world. Sometimes you feel like you don't fit in with people in the world. And what he'd say is, and that's because you don't. But that shouldn't bother you. I remember back when I was, <laughs> when I was in middle school, and I hate to kind of go back so far, but when I was in middle school, I mean, like, I was just a punk. Um, I look back and think, man, I can't believe somebody didn't, like, just pound me when I was in middle school. I was, I had this friend named Brian, and, and neither one of us were Christians, hadn't been to church, hadn't read the Bible, didn't know the gospel, didn't know about God's love for us. We're just punks, and, and we were really into all the things that just punks do, and we, we had a terrible vocabularies. We loved that. We just loved to find new swear words and to use them as much as we could, and uh, to shock old people by saying words around them, and, you know, we were really into being rude. Uh, we were into, you know, we thought pornography was cool. Um, we were into vandalism, kind of, you know, at first it was just kind of petty vandalism, but then we kind of, and where we grew up, we would always go down and in July, the beginning of July to Tijuana, we didn't live that far from the border, and we'd go down and always buy a few pieces of pottery and then fill them up with illegal fireworks and bring them back across the border. And then I always knew where my dad stashed the fireworks, and so I'd always go take a few. And my dad used to get these, like, these M80s that were coated and they were fireproof. I'm sorry, they were waterproof. And we used to like to take them, and, um, and I, I totally forgot about this, but in Nicaragua a few weeks ago, we were working on a plumbing system, and it kind of brought back these bad memories. We would, we would take these M80s, and we would light them. We'd go down like to the beach to public toilets, you know, and there'd be like all these toilets in a row and we'd take the M80 and we'd light it and throw it down in the toilet and wait till right before it blew up and then flush it and let it go down the trap and then it would blow up and kind of cause some, some backflow issues in the other adjacent toilets and that's just the kind of kids that we were and then um, I, it was just a punk. My wife always says, I'm so glad I didn't meet you when you were in middle school because I would have hated you, but... Um, but anyway, so then uh, when we graduated from middle school, he moved to San Clemente, and I stayed where I was. And uh, I started high school. He started high school. We were separated from each other. I met some Christians. I became, a couple of months later, I became a Christ follower. A couple months later, after that, I went to spend a week with him and visit him. He hadn't become a Christ follower. I had. We got together. He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And he goes, hey, you know, I'll look at some pornography. And I'm like, no, I don't really want to do that. You want to go do some vandalism? No, no, I'm not really, not really into that. Uh, you want to just like, you know, talk cuss words and stuff? No, I don't really want to do that. And I remember we'd only been together for 10 minutes and he's like, dude, I don't even know who you are anymore. And I can remember when he said that, feeling a little kind of like insecure and maybe you've experienced that. And I, but, but the point was he didn't know me anymore. I wasn't the same person. I had a new father. I had a new character. I, didn't even, I had a new destiny. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe there's a point in your life when you didn't know God and you did say things and looked at things and said things and then you got saved. And maybe some of your old friends were like, we don't even know you anymore. And maybe that filled, maybe for you that made you feel a little insecure. 
the way it should make us feel is, praise God, you know, because I'm not the same person. God saved me. God's redeemed me. Unfortunately, oftentimes, our response to that, um, it can, it can kind of go in one of two unhelpful directions. One of the unhelpful directions is where we kind of take the rejection of unbelievers personally and then we kind of get angry or we kind of want to, you know, get a little condemning or judgmental or a lot of times we just decide that we're going to avoid them and not talk to them anymore, have anything to do with them. And I think John comes along and says, you, you have to understand, it's not personal. It's really not about you. It's about, it's about Jesus. The problem is they don't know him. And because they don't know him, they don't know you. What they need is they don't need you to compromise and bend the rules and be somebody you're not. They need you to point them to Jesus. That kind of reminds me of the other unhelpful direction we go in, and that is instead of just rejecting them, we often try to fit in with them. We, we look for acceptance. Maybe we feel a little insecure. We don't like being on the outside. And so, you know, maybe we want them to like us. So, you know, we'll do things to impress them or say things or look at things or view things or drink things or try to be cool or adopt some sinful practices so we fit in with them or adjust our vocabulary or our morality or our ethics. And, and I think John's coming along. He's like, yeah, that, that doesn't help them. See, what they need to see is light. They don't need darkness. They need to see light and the love of God. What, we, what they need is for, for Christians to come around them to reflect the love of God and to point them to Jesus. Because if they know Jesus, then you're going to be able to have an actual, real, meaningful relationship with them. If we have faith in Christ, we become the children of God. And we can be secure in that and loved in that and we don't have to compromise and we don't have to feel insecure. I, again, I think John just, John kind of comes along. Remember when John writes this, he's, he's like in his 80s. He's the only of uh, Jesus' disciples still alive. And he's writing this letter to people who are second and third generation Christians and, and they're probably struggling to fit in and they're feeling isolated. And I think John would just come up to them, people who are insecure and struggling. I would imagine he'd just put his, his, his arms around them and hug them and go, just take a breath. Just relax for a minute and breathe in the love of God. You don't have anything to prove to anyone. God loves you. Just be that, that, that child. John says our, our past is marked by the love of God. Our present is marked by love of God. In our future, he says, we will be. We will continue to be loved by God. That's our, our future. Our future is the love of God. In verse 2, he says, beloved, now we are children of God. That's, that's who we are right now. And, and then he looks to the future, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. Now, we know that when he appears, so he's talking about, you know, Jesus is going to come back and, and maybe we'll be alive when he comes back and he'll take us up to heaven or maybe we'll, we'll pass from this life to the next and we'll appear before him. He says, but the, well, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. He says, our future through the love of God, through the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of Christ, our destiny is that we will be like him. Now, right now, when we look at ourselves, it's a little hard to imagine that, isn't it? I mean, right now, I kind of look at myself, and I could see a little bit of the character of Jesus, and when I do, I like that. 
That feels pretty good, you know, for you probably when you're in a situation and you react as Christ would. Feels pretty good, doesn't it? And you know that's not you. That's the Holy Spirit who's growing you and working in you. And that's a great thing. But sometimes, you know, I don't see that in me. Sometimes I, I respond or I'm, I'm ignorant or I'm, I'm insecure or I'm selfish. And I, when I see those things, I'm like, oh, I, I can't wait for the day when that stuff's gone from my life. And that's the promise that someday that stuff will be gone. Someday, not in this life, but someday we're going to be like Christ in our character. Now in this life, God is growing us. We call that sanctification. God's growing us towards that. But someday we'll leave this earth and our fleshly part behind, our sinful part behind. He says, but we can't imagine right now what that would be like. I mean, he says it hasn't appeared as yet. What, what that will be like. And you can sit down. I, I sat down this week and tried to imagine what will that be like, and I can't imagine it. And you can't imagine it because um, we just can't. We can't imagine what it would be like to not have these certain parts of ourselves. What would it be like to not have any sinful thoughts or any sinful motives? What would it be like to not have any fleshly lusts? We don't know. We don't, we, we don't know what that would be like. What would it be like to not have any pride whatsoever? Never be motivated by pride or insecurity or greed or selfishness or hate or, or whatever. So we can't. It, it's hard for us because you, you could travel the entire earth and you could meet the most godly person on the face of the earth and they still won't be as much like Christ as you will be someday when you stand before him. It's hard for us to, when we think of ourselves, to not think of our fleshly self as being part of our identity. It's, it, it's, it's difficult, but the promise is someday this will be true for us. Now, it, this doesn't mean that we will become like, that we will become God or that we'll become Jesus, as some people mistakenly think John's saying here. God will always be God, and we will always be, he will always be the creator, and we will always be the creation He will always be the object of worship and we will always gladly be the ones who worship him. He will always be the source of light and we will always be the beneficiaries and and the reflectors of that light. But we will be like him in our character, in our morality. We'll love what he loves and value what he values and enjoy what he enjoys, enjoys and hate what he hates. So what do we do in the meantime as we wait for that day? Well, in verse three, he says this, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him. So the, the hope he's talking about is, is that as we look to our future and we begin to, to, to kind of love that idea that someday these imperfect parts of us will be gone. These parts of us that hurt our mate or disappoint our kids or let down other people, that's going to be gone. And there'll no longer be any disappointment in us or about us. And he says that when we fix our hope on that, have you done that? Have you began to look forward and say, I can't wait till the day when I am fully like Jesus. He says people who do that, they, they purify themselves just as he is, is pure. See, we tend to, when we look forward to something, when we fixate on something, when we obsess on something, we tend to kind of gravitate towards that thing. He says people who fix their hope on Jesus live a life of increasing purity. I don't know if you've ever sinned and just felt kind of dirty because of that sin. Maybe you said something or did something or, or cheated on something and, and you felt dirty 
And, uh, and you might remember back in chapter 1, verse 9, John talks a little bit how we deal with that. He says if we confess our sin, and that we, we said back then that that word confess, it's a compound word in the Greek, homo lageo. Uh, the first word homo means the same, and lageo means to speak. And he says so that when we sin and we, and we confess our sin, that is we say the same thing about our sin that God says, it's sin, it's wrong, it's outside the will of God. When we confess that, then God forgives us, he cleanses us from our sin. And he says that when we begin to live this life of, of, of increasing purity and staying clean, he says that's part of what it means to be a child of God, to fix our focus and our, our passion on the future. Because we tend to move towards what we, what we love, what we, what we fixate on, what we obsess on. It made, me, it made me think about, I don't know what, what you're obsessed on right now or what you're fixed on. Maybe it's money or someone or something. It made me think about how back when I was in college, I remember, I mean, I just, I remember like it was yesterday. One morning, I'm walking out of the dorm room and uh, I'm going to go to class and I walk out. I'm headed to Greek. I walk out the door. I went to school in Phoenix. It was a beautiful day. Not like today. And I walked out and I looked across the campus and there was this girl walking out across campus and I knew her. We'd had discussions before and talked before and I saw her and I did, something happened. It's like, it's like I, it, the angels started singing and the birds were chirping and I looked at her and something in me said, she's my future. I mean, at least I hope she's my future. And I was like, I, I was obsessive. I had to convince her I wasn't a stalker. But eventually I did, and, and we got married. And, you know, that, that kind of happens with us. Those things we obsess and look and love and, and fix it. And he's like, you know, that's what it means to be a child of God. You just totally fall in love with Jesus. And he becomes the thing you fixate on. He becomes the future that you strive towards. You become enamored by him. You admire him. You want to worship him and, and you study him. And now every day in your life, you kind of have two agendas. You kind of have a micro and a macro agenda, if you will. Your micro agenda is today you get up and you have stuff to do. You have appointments to go to, a job or homework or whatever it is. But you also kind of have a, a macro, a large agenda over every day. And that is that whatever you do that day, your big overarching goal is to, is to follow Jesus in that situation, to honor him, to obey him, to reflect his character everywhere that you go. So that at the end of the day, your success is not measured by how many things you did and how many boxes you ticked off, but, but were you, did you follow Christ through your relationships and your responsibilities that day? John says, if you have faith in Christ, you're a child of God. And if you're a child of God, increasingly the thing that, that becomes um, your, your goal is the purity of Christ in your life. Why would we do that? Why would we pursue that? There's probably lots of reasons, but one reason that you would pursue purity is just simply for God. Because it honors God, because you appreciate what God's done for you, and you know that it pleases God when you live a, a life of purity. And so one of the reasons I think we do that is because we love God and we want to please him and we want to be like him. Another reason I think that we pursue purity is for our own sake. I mean, one of the things I see in the Gospels when Jesus teaches is Jesus will teach and say, here's how to live. And then he'll, he'll, at the end of his teaching, he'll say, now you'll be blessed if you do these things. Jesus always made it clear when he taught that the goal wasn't to memorize it and outline it. and you know, His goal was always like, now go do this. Go live this. Because the best way to live 
is, is to honor the words of Christ. It's always the, be- the best way to pursue relationships is to do them the way Jesus said. The best way to live life in finances in every area of your life is to do it the way Jesus said because he knew what he was talking about when he talked about how to live life. So we, we pursue purity for the sake of God and for our own sake and we do it for the people around us. I put the word oikos there because we talk about oikos in our church. Oikos is a Greek word They would have used it during the time of Jesus. The Greeks would have to describe a a web of relationships. Oikos means household or extended household. And uh, maybe, maybe you have, you might... Think of yourself on Facebook as having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of friends on Facebook, right? But the reality is, studies say you probably only have anywhere from 8 to 15 people with whom you have loving, influential, uh, connected kind of relationship with. And, and that's what the word oikos means. The people with whom you have loving, influential relationships. And one of the reasons that we want to live a life of purity is because there's some people in your oikos and they don't have a relationship with Jesus, they don't know him yet. God, is, God cares about them. Jesus died for them. God is pursuing them. And, and that should be important to us as Christ followers. We should, we should care about that. We should be praying for them. And we should want to reflect the love of God to the people in our oikos who don't know Jesus. Studies say that most people come to a relationship with Christ through an oikos relationship. That's you. And that's me. And so to the extent that God is passionate about them, that should be important to us. Now, how do we reach the people in our oikos? It's not through compromising and being needy and giving in to to our worldly society and way of doing things. It's by living and reflecting the love and the purity of God to the people around us. See, Satan has told us a lie, and the lie is this, that we are not good enough to be loved by God. And I don't know how your week has been or your month has been or the last year has been, but maybe you came in here this morning thinking you're not a very lovable person and you're not so sure that God loves you right now. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, John says, you need to understand that you are loved by God. When, when we were down in Nicaragua, I had the chance one day to gather together a bunch of uh, church leaders in the area and spend an afternoon teaching them. And uh, it wasn't like we weren't in a place like this um, with a sound system and walls and a roof. In fact, this is, this is a picture of where we were. Uh, we were at the work site. So we're on this farm and we're building this facility on the farm. It's a two-story building there. And so um, they said, you're going to teach all the area church leaders on Sunday afternoon. And uh, you'll gather. So we gathered and we were in this place. Now, while I was teaching them, there were people doing some electrical work there. And there were some people about 10 feet away with um, saws, sawing wood. And there was a tractor about 20 yards away that was stuck in the mud. And they were revving the engine trying to get it out of there. And so I'm I'm sitting with these church leaders and I'm trying to teach them and I'm having to talk louder and louder and, and uh, you know, it, and I've got an interpreter, Jaime, who's with me and so I'd, I'd teach and then he'd speak and so I'm talking at one point in the message about John the disciple 
and about how um, John always referred to himself in his gospel as the disciple who Jesus loved. So if you've been here, you know, we've talked about that in the series. Jesus didn't talk about John that way. Other disciples didn't. That was just John. That's the way John described himself. He said, I am the disciple who Jesus loved. So I'm talking about this and going through this and trying to tell church leaders why it's so important that you help people understand in your churches that, that God loves them if they are in Christ and if they're not, that God has pursued them. And so I'm kind of talking about this and one and the pastor kind of raises his hand and remember everything's through an interpreter so I'm like yes and and uh so he asks a question and the interpreter says um he the question he's asking is when did Jesus stop loving John so I'm you know kind of like I'm I don't know I'm teaching and the tractor's trying to get out of the mud and people are sawing on wood and you know I'm trying to uh, what's he asking and I said well I I Jesus never stopped loving John And so the interpreter tells him, and then the guy kind of gets on the edge of his seat, and he raises his voice, and then the interpreter says, well, he said, right here it says that Jesus loved him, which means at some point he didn't love him. So I said, oh, no, no, you got to understand, John's writing historically many years later, and he's looking back and saying, and uh, and so he leans forward, and he says, no, 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 no. He's like, you know, we do things, we sin, and when we sin, God doesn't love us anymore. And so what did John do? How did John sin that Jesus didn't love him? And so the interpreter says that, and I start to answer the question, and the interpreter, before I even finish, leans forward and says something in kind of a loud voice to the guy who asked the question, and the guy kind of leans forward, and he says something in a really loud voice really fast, and then another guy stands up, and he says something in a loud voice, and the interpreter is like getting all worked up, and I'm, I, I don't even know what they're talking about, you know, like, should we have chicken or beef for lunch? I don't know. And so they're talking, and then another guy gets up, and another guy gets in it, and soon I count, there's eight guys and they're standing up and they're talking and and the interpreter is talking he's not saying anything to i'm like what's he saying what's he saying and he's all worked up and this guy's worked up and pretty soon i'm like i lied up i'm like should i just leave you know because i don't even know what they're doing and all of a sudden this one guy stands up this big guy and he stands up and in a really loud voice he starts yelling and everyone gets quiet and he's obviously the, the 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 big honcho and the interpreter starts interpreting. He says, he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sit down and shut up and let the pastor keep talking. <laughs> and everyone sat down and they shut up and they leaned forward. And I started talking and I, I thought to myself, you know, we can, get, we can just get so caught up, can't we, in life and the things we do and I let God down and I let people down and how can God still love me? And I almost picture like if John were here today, he might lean forward and say, you know, that's a really good point. Sometimes you just need to sit down and shut up and accept the fact that God loves you. You're not perfect? Yes. You make mistakes? Yes. Just sit down and shut up and get on with it. He loves you. Just enjoy that. Just, just breathe that in. So my question for you this morning is simply this. Is there some area in your life? Maybe the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you this morning. And instead of, instead of living in the secure love of God, you've been a little insecure. And maybe you've been making some compromises. Maybe you've been looking for love in, in some very inappropriate places. Maybe you've been trying to fill, your, maybe you, when you think about yourself for a mistake you made, or you're, you're compromising. Maybe it's affecting a relationship, or your thought life, or some sinful practice. And this morning, it's like, God, the Spirit's coming to you and saying, you're so worked up about all this stuff. Just sit down and shut up and enjoy my love for you. Could you just do that for a moment? 
Could you just breathe that in and enjoy that and just go from here today a loved child of God? Can you? God invites us to do that. Let's pray together.